Hey listeners, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this episode of Spilling Buckets, Naod Mahari joins the show where we discuss NBA Top Shot, the crowded Eastern Conference, LaMelo's recent ascension, the firing of Lloyd Pierce, the Knicks are above 500, some Harden MVP noise, and then finally some decade decisions where we decide which players we would prefer for the next decade. Enjoy. I'm joined again by Naod Mahari. Looking forward to some more hoops talk, Naod. I wanted to just get going with NBA Top Shot. I'm not sure if you've dove in at all. I heard some craze about it a few weeks ago on Clubhouse, and I signed up a few weeks ago, and the last week or two, it's really become hot. Have you have you dabbled at all, or more so just on the outside looking in? Um, I've been exploring it a little bit. I haven't actually bought any of the packs or anything like that, but... Um, I understand that it's ran through the blockchain, so kind of the crypto craze is starting to take over here. So it's interesting because um, I think the top transaction that I saw was a card that went for $208,000. So um, definitely, you know, I think the prices of the packs range between like, I want to say 15 to to $100. So, yeah. I mean, if you get something like pretty legendary, you know, your return on that could be crazy. So it definitely seems like a viable business strategy, something that could work long-term. I think they're accepting multiple forms of payment. I think they said Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and obviously you can just pay, you know, with your debit or credit card. And I think they're starting to get, you know, this is, I think this is the early stages, but when you get those okays from some of the big names, you know, I recently heard Mark Cuban say, you know, some his he shared his two cents on the topic and he was excited that he got a, a Maxi Kleba, uh, dunk or something like that one of his own players so i think it's gonna catch it's gonna it's gonna catch some storm here and it's gonna start trending soon i think it's still in the infancy stage but it's definitely interesting like these things are accessible to just about anybody and still there's a kind of a craze to own these plays so i definitely think that uh it's very interesting to take a look at yeah i think it's pretty wild i am not too knowledgeable about the crypto space in general but i signed up two weeks ago purchased a Darius Baisley moment as I'm a big fan of his. And I'm kind of looking at it as players that are a little bit more under the radar, who I perceive as guys that will kind of take a leap in the next few years and become studs. But at the same time, what I've seen and what I've heard is that at least in the infancy stages, it's not necessarily going to work like, Oh, SGA just had a career high 42. Now, if you have his moment, it's going to jump up 200%. So it's not like working like that yet. And I think that's largely because it's just so early and because there aren't even that many users. I think there's a couple hundred thousand users. And a lot of people think that there'll be upwards of a hundred million users in the years to come. It is such a strange, it is strange though, because 
a lot of people will ask, why would you want these moments? Unlike a physical card where you may actually use it as the core, you can actually have that in your home and enjoy it. Um, these are obviously just digital moments. So it is kind of strange, but as you mentioned, yeah, the LeBron James dunk went for 208 grand and you could even look on the leaderboard. The person that has the most value as far as their moments has $37 million of value, which is absolutely wild to me. Um, and I actually purchased my first pack over the weekend. They did a $9 pack for all the users. You could pre-order it. So I can open it in two weeks. And one of the, they'll show you the moments that are included in the pack. And there are 46 moments. And one of them is the Edwards dunk that we just saw against Toronto. So like you're sitting there thinking, all right, if I get, if I get that moment, like this could be a 50 to hundred grand minimum profit. So it's certainly attractive, but at the same time, um, it could be extremely addictive too. kind of just looking at your, at the ROI on your moments every other hour, which is definitely a bad habit. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the strategy, that's what makes it so enticing. It's like, you know, if I get this card, there's a big chance I could, you know, make a hundred percent, 1000 percent gains, yeah. you know, and that's not even far fetched depending on which cards you get. So um, I think, I think what's, what's going to make this work though, is that the NBA is behind this. Um, they've signed, you know, they have some type of partnership with uh, one of the groups that's kind of making this thing all go. So um, if you've got the NBA behind it and, you know, all these things are going to fall in line. I'm sure this is going to take off. So I don't think that the, the increase in users, I don't think there's any question. I think it's going to go up. I see it trending on Twitter, you know, bleach report, all these other apps that talks, uh, talk NBA. So um, definitely going to, it's definitely going to come out to be a lot more lucrative in the future. So I feel like there's a lot of people right now that are jumping on the early bandwagon just for that reason. So I think, and I think what you said about Darius Baisley and those younger players you never know down the line, those things might become really valuable. So it's definitely one of those buy and hold situations. I don't think I'd sell my cards right away. And yeah, I just, I just think it's interesting that something so, you know, atypical is starting to take off. I mean, even when you look at NBA cards that sell like the physical cards, technically you can like look up the pictures on those cards, you know, on Google images or something like that. So it's not, it's not that, you know, it's not about the accessibility. It's more about, you know, I have this, it's an ownership type of thing. And in the long term, it's value play. So I think, I think that's what crypto is all about, you know, just yeah. making, making it so everybody has things that they can trade and it's all through a database. You know, I'm not too familiar on the fundamentals and that, but I know it's moved through a database and all that stuff. So it's pretty clean in terms of the transactions. So there's nothing fraudulent about it. Um, the market, there's a market for it. You can, there's visibility, there's transparency. So those are the type of business models that tend to work in the long run. So I like that. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I was saying to my brother too, we, we got a Markel Fultz moment. It's kind of that same theory of let's hold on to these moments for as long as we can. Um, but at the same time, who really knows how this will manifest? I think there are people too that kind of have that fear of, oh, well, I have 20 moments and how do I know that in 10 years from now, people can say, oh, that's great. You have these 10 moments, but there's no value to those. But moving on to the actual, to some actual basketball, the Knicks have made some movement in the East. They're uh, currently the four seed. And just, I think what we've seen already, obviously there's a lot of parity in the East, but as far as what the playing game is doing for the regular season, I think it's creating a lot of excitement. And if we look at the East, I know last time we spoke, we were talking about how the Heat, 
um, looked a little bit out of it. I think they were 11 or 12 seed. They're already 500 and a team that could easily finish as a top three, four seed. So a lot of excitement in the East. Is there any team you're looking at or um, any, the Wizards too, to mention, but any team you've been focusing on recently as a team that you think can get hot here in the next few, next few months? Yeah, that's a good point. I was just about to say that Wizards team is starting to creep into the picture too. Um, you know, Atlanta firing Lloyd Pierce. We'll see which way their season goes from there. Um, the Hornets are fun, man, and they they play a lot of close games. You know, that's a cool league pass team to follow. Um, and they're they're kind of in the thick of things. You know, Indiana's always a competitive team. Um, but I think out of that group, I like the Miami Heat the most just because of the experience. They're starting to turn things around. You know, Jimmy and Bam might not be all-stars this year, but, you know, those are two all-star level players they have. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not going to give up on the Celtics because I think they're going to be buyers at the deadline as well. I think, you know, Danny Ainge has definitely came to the realization that, you know, this, his bench is very thin and that, you know, when Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown's out of the game, there's a significant drop off, you know, in the team's performance, especially because Kemba Walker, you know, as he, as he gets back to hundred percent. Uh, you definitely need, you know, the, the loss of Gordon Hayward can't be understated. So they definitely need another guy in there, you know, that can possibly create and, you know, be kind of like a linchpin for that second unit. So I like the, I like the experienced teams overall in, out of that like bunch of teams, but um, I don't know. It's anybody, it's up for grabs. And I think when the NBA announced, you know, this new play in scenario where nine and 10 are still alive, I thought that was a perfect hedge against, you know, teams that are trying to tank and just play for lottery odds because now, you know, I'm looking at the East standings and I want to say at least 12 teams in the East have, you know, reason to keep playing, you know, and I feel like 50% into the season, for the most part, we usually only have nine or 10 teams that are alive. We kind of already have a feeling as to who's getting in. Looking at this right now, I can't say anybody from one through 12 is out of the picture, right? I, I think the Cavs, Magic, and Pistons may yeah. be a little far off, but everybody else seems to be alive. Yeah, no, it is an interesting point that you bring up. It's tough to sell your fan base on um, selling assets for future assets or win-now assets for future assets when you're only two or three games out of that playoff hunt. And at the same time, a team like the Knicks, right, who's currently the fourth seed, you lose a few games, you're really a nine or ten seed. So it also gives you some more leeway there, a little bit less nerves as a fan. But I think the playing game certainly has done exactly what the hope was and created a more more intriguing regular season. Because I think a team like Chicago or even Atlanta would be would be feeling a little bit of pressure to sell, especially a team like Chicago. I know there's been a lot of talks about potentially moving Thaddeus Young earlier in the season, Zach Levine. That seems less realistic now. But yeah, I mean, a team like Chicago, any of these teams, you get hot and you could easily move into that four seed. It seems like we've kind of solidified our top three seeds here right now with Milwaukee, Philly, and Brooklyn. But at the same time, it wouldn't shock. I don't think it would shock any of us if Miami goes on a 10-game winning streak and kind of moves in there. I know the advanced numbers like Milwaukee and kind of imply that they should have a better record than they do. And Giannis has been playing out of his mind recently. But there are so many teams, and we're going to get an exciting playing game too. I mean, thinking about... Uh, Lamelo Ball in a playing game, or um, even a team like the Raptors, a feisty team like that, who if they keep all their pieces, they can get in, and that's not a team you want to face in the first round. So the East, 
typically to me, at least in the past, less exciting, but more parody than the West in the past few years. There's certainly some talent in the East, which is certainly helped by Brooklyn who in the past few weeks, in my opinion, have solidified themselves as if not the best team in the East, the best team in this league. And that's without Kevin Durant. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm looking at the East, you know, I agree with you. The top three teams seem to have a healthy, you know, lead over, you know, seed four through 15, of course. But, you know, that's the thing, though. The four or five race becomes so interesting because that means one, you know, one team that, you know, grinds out and, you know, finishes with one of those, you know, top five seeds that might not be expected to get to the second round now has a realistic shot to win a playoff series. And I think just for like, you know, a team like the Hornets or, a team like the Hawks or the Bulls where they have such a young nucleus playoff experience would be so huge to helping that team ascend to the next level where they become, you know, because that, you know, from, from a rebuilding team to a competitive team, the next step you look to take is to become a consistent playoff team. So I think there's just, I think it's just good for basketball to have these playing tournaments because at the end of the day, as fans, you know, the, the biggest games and the games we critique players on the most or where we kind of develop our opinions on these guys, He's in those do or die moments, those high leverage games. So, you know, last year's playing game with, uh, I think it was Memphis and Portland. That was a lot of fun, you know, and it was only one game and Portland got through, but it felt like a seven game series in four quarters. If you know what I mean, it was just so every, every possession mattered because it was, your season was on the line. It was like a football playoff game, but in the form, you know, in, in an NBA, you know, um, situation. So, I definitely like that. Um, I think even though the East is very interesting, the West has quietly shaped up to has an interesting race going on from seeds five through 10, I want to say, only separated by two and a half games. So there's definitely going to be jockeying for positioning. And I think that creates an interesting dialogue come playoff time is, hey, we don't match up well with these guys. Do we, you know, try to lose a game here or there to position ourselves differently? And then you factor in, you know, like draft positioning and draft picks and all these things. Like, is it better for us to miss the playoffs so we keep our protected pick? Or is it better we go for the playoff experience with the group we have now? So lots of front offices, coaching staff, you know, they're going to have some questions to answer in these last 30, 40 games of the season. Yeah, Nao, your point about the fact that we really measure these teams based off or players based off playoff performances or performances in meaningful games. To your point, even if these teams, even if certain teams just missed that playing game. For example, what we saw with Phoenix last year in the bubble when they were playing meaningful games for the first time in a while and go eight and oh, and that I know they acquired Chris Paul, but that kind of triggered them to a nice start this season and had them heading in more confident. There are going to be teams that are playing meaningful games for the first time in a while, even if it's a team like the Pelicans who have an outsider shot right now who can get into it. They've been playing better of late, lost a lot of close games. But yeah, to see guys like Zion or Brandon Ingram or this is probably too optimistic because I'm a fan of his, but a guy like SGA playing meaningful games towards the end of the season, that would be exciting. I know in, uh, in OKC, they're probably hoping they tank a little bit given all the picks they have. But yeah, no, I, those are always the games that we're measuring guys on. Even last year, as you mentioned, John Morant in that playing game against Portland, I think had a 30-plus point game and really kind of saw what he can do when it comes down to crunch time. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, I wanted to get back to the Nets. I know... Um, you're a big advocate of James Harden. Are you in the past few weeks, we've started to hear a little bit of MVP talk, which to me is warranted. He's averaging, I think 25, seven and 11 playing, um, extremely efficient basketball last night, 
44 minutes, zero turnovers, which is unbelievable. Um, let's hear your MVP pitch on Harden. So here's the thing. I actually think there is a solid case for James Harden to be the most valuable player. Do I think the media is going to give it to him? Probably not. Just, you know, politically, it wouldn't, it, it doesn't sit well with the voters, you know, how his, you know, situation in Houston ended, kind of how he got himself to the Nets. But if we're only looking at it from, well, I want to say the nine games he played in Houston, that first three games he was there, he was actually balling out of his mind. Yeah, the first game in Portland. Like, yeah, 44 and 17. It was like, yo, I need to get out of here ASAP because I got somewhere to be. And then he kind of, you know, missed the game, you know, started kind of tanking his performance. Um, he sandbagged it at the end, got out of there. And since he's been a Brooklyn Net, he's been phenomenal, though. I, I just don't see the argument for him to be left off of an MVP ladder. Um, you look at LeBron James last season, I believe he put up 25, 10 and seven or 10 and eight, kind of what James Harden's doing now. Uh, not as efficiently, by the way, on a team that was among the top in the conference. And everybody was saying he deserved MVP over Giannis. So if James Harden's putting up similar numbers on better efficiency on a team that hasn't had Kevin Durant for this stretch where they've went nine and one, He's played one game in Golden State on that West Coast trip, and he's been out since. Um, and James Harden, one of the biggest question marks was, hey, can he adjust his game and fit alongside such a, you know, a big piece like Kyrie Irving who demands touches and has had trouble in the past kind of meshing with different situations. But, I mean, James Harden has made a seamless transition into the Nets offense. I personally thought that was always going to happen because I knew as soon as I saw Mike D'Antoni get hired there, in my mind, I was like, if James Harden gets out of Houston, Brooklyn's going to be on the short list of teams he wants to go to just because of the comfortability factor, the familiarity with the offense. And the Brooklyn Nets have quietly became the James Harden show. You know, they have some dynamic pieces there, guys that can knock down shots, make plays. But um, the way I look at it, and I, I don't know, you can critique this, but a guy that can get a guy that wins MVP should have a huge imprint on the game. And right now, watching James Harden, I'm not sure anyone else has had a bigger imprint on the game than he has. Every time he suits up, you know what James – like, you, you leave that game saying, man, James Harden made these many, like, plays where I was like, damn, not many guys in the world could do this ever. And I'm just like, you know – and he's consistently doing that night in and night out, and they're getting Ws. So, I don't know. I think he should be at least top three in the discussion – regardless of how you feel about the Houston situation. Yeah, no, you bring up a bunch of interesting points. I think something that fans have consistently discounted with Harden is the fact that he plays every night and he plays 38 plus minutes every single night. I know they try to give him shit for the shape that he's in, but if you can play that many minutes at that high of a level, regardless of what his perceived gut may look like, he can obviously stay out there and is obviously in well more than good enough game shape. I think what's interesting is the longer Durant's out, the more he might get consideration for this because the Nets, obviously they've gotten more comfortable over the season with Nash and their offense and their defense. Still not great, but slightly improved over the last week or two. But I think what we're discounting is that when it was just Irving and, Har and Durant, they were struggling to win games against some lesser talented teams and they weren't playing nearly as well of basketball. And I know some of the role players have improved with Brown and Claxton over the past few days. But what, what Harden's been able to do really running this team is extremely impressive. If you look at the wins they had on their most recent road trip, and I also think, I think it's kind of a blessing for this team 
it's hard to say that Durant's out because I think that Kyrie and Harden meshing is really the concern when Harden came over, right? Durant's as great of a player as Durant is. He can kind of mesh with any team. He doesn't need the ball in his hands at all times. He can play off ball, and he's not as high of a usage guy necessarily as Irving and Harden. So I think that the way that uh, Harden's been able to just mesh with Kyrie over the last few weeks, I think speaks to the way that Harden's been able to adjust his game. I think a lot of us kind of thought that in Houston, he was the type of guy that had to dribble the ball through his legs for 15 seconds. And if it wasn't his shot, giving it to a guy covered in the corner, but that's not necessarily what was the case we've seen here. And what we even learned from Harden is that he kind of became tired of that style play in Houston. He was ready to kind of move on, not have to be relied on a score 40 a game. And what we're seeing here for the first time, at least from, from what I'm watching on TV is he seems like he's having fun for the first time in a while, which is also great to see out of him. I think the last year or two in Houston kind of lost that element. And now him and Kyrie seem to be meshing perfectly. So I think there is a case. I think if he's going to win it, Brooklyn has to run away with the one seed right in the East. And I think that the longer Durant stays out, the easier it'll be. Cause I kind of think it's a similar, similar situation as LeBron in Miami. It was so hard for him to win an MVP because of that cast and the perception there. So I think if, if Durant misses some more time and there's no rush to bring him back, kind of like the similar situation with AD, I think that improves Harden's case. So, yeah, those are some good points. Yeah. Just to kind of throw out there, he, James Harden is leading the league in minutes also. So that's yeah. another thing he's leading the league in 37.7 minutes a night. So he's definitely dependable. Uh, I think you're right. There's some merit to the fact that, you know, James Harden, it, there seemed to be a burnout at the end of his tenure in Houston, especially when they went super small put a lot of stress on him. You know, he had to defend, switch everything, you know, bang with bigger guys and things like that. So um, definitely at the end of his Houston tenure, you could see, I'm not going to say he checked out, but um, it didn't shock me when he said, you know, he was looking to go elsewhere, especially with the coaching change and GM Daryl Morey, you know, leaving things like that. So kind of the group that he had uh, grown with and kind of gotten accustomed to, you know, they were out the door. Russell Westbrook was gone. So it almost felt like Houston, you know, they were in denial, but it was time for a rebuild there. So James Harden, you know, went to Brooklyn. And I think, you know, one last point about this. And I think people always downplay the importance of a supporting cast when it comes to winning and winning big. Because with James Harden, it always comes back to the same thing. And it's, yeah, he's always dominated regular season basketball. But when will he, you know, have that signature moment in the postseason where we can finally say, you know, he – you know, he, he belongs with the all-time greats because he has all the numbers, he has all the accolades, but he just doesn't have that championship run. You know, Houston was great for all these years, but they weren't able to get over the hump and get to the NBA Finals. And the one thing I will say is this Brooklyn team gives him as good of a chance as he's ever had, you know, obviously because of the star talent that's alongside him. But just looking at this Brooklyn team, they're the most efficient shooting team in the league. You know, with Houston, the strategy was there but the personnel didn't necessarily fit what they were trying to do. Houston was, I think they were 24th in three-point percentage last year. Um, the, let, the Nets, sorry, lead the league in three-point percentage, you know, effective field goal percentage, true shooting percentage, all those advanced statistics. So all, that, all, that, all those things are measuring is the true shooting efficiency of the team. So if James Harden is creating open looks for guys that can knock them down, you know, the result is the greatest offensive team in NBA history, which they are – to this point statistically. And I think, you know, the results speak for themselves. Yeah, no, to your point, I mean, any MVP candidate 
the assumption is he makes his teammates better. And we're seeing guys like Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton um, put up numbers that I don't think anyone envisioned. And I know Kyrie was playing well before Harden arrived, but I think Harden's, I mean, I think Kyrie is best suited as kind of that off ball guard who can get hot when he needs to, but doesn't really need to be running the offense. So Harden's taking the pressure off him too. So I think as we mentioned, if the Nets can get that one seed and Durant missed some more time and the perception on Harden improves, I think he has a chance. I just think that the way that he left Houston, unfortunately, is just going to leave a sour taste in a lot of media members' mouths, whether it should or shouldn't. And I think it'll make it even more challenging for him. But I wanted to move on to LaMelo Ball and the Hornets, who have been very exciting. They had an all-time comeback a few nights ago against the Kings, or you could also call it an all-time collapse by the Kings. But LaMelo Ball, since being inserted into that starting lineup, has been unbelievable for Charlotte and kind of has them back on the map. One point I heard nailed that really I thought was interesting about pre-draft LaMelo's perception and him being taken third was I think that, and I, I fall victim to this, is I think a lot of us kind of saw Lonzo come in a league and not really live up to his expectations. Granted, he's playing very well recently. And I think a lot of us kind of assume that that would be the same case for LaMelo, and that's not really fair. Um, and LaMelo's already exceeded expectations for a lot of us. What I've been most impressed by is the fact that he's shooting 37% from three and 80 from the line. I kind of attached Lonzo struggles there to him, which is unfair of me, but I've been incredibly impressed by what he's doing. And he's only 19. Yeah, definitely. I think the the funky shooting form, the kind of the mechanics being kind of off, just like his brother, you know, had some people with, you know, long-term questions about, you know, will LaMelo's shooting translate? Um, so far he's shooting a lot better than his brother did as a rookie. Um, you know, and I don't know how much of a credit that is to Charlotte and the staff or, you know, whether or whether LaMelo's form just works. But, you know, so far there's not much to complain about in terms of the results. And it's looking promising. The The month-to-month progression he's making as a rookie is crazy. I think he just – he got rookie of the month today. I think they just announced it, averaging, I want to say, 26-6. and six. So he definitely, you know, he's making a statistical impact. The Hornets are around 500, so they're winning. Um, I don't think it's even a contest. I think he's pretty much a lock at this point to win rookie of the year. And I think as Charlotte transitions into, you know, embracing LaMelo as the franchise player, I I think he's already pretty box office. You know, I was on clubhouse and there were some people from Charlotte saying like, man, like we haven't had, you know, somebody like this in a long, long time. I think they said Larry Johnson was the last person that really, you know, had the city, excited about NBA basketball and that's not a knock on Kemba because I think Kemba was a phenomenal player in Charlotte as well but he just didn't have that box office appeal that LaMelo does because you know LaMelo growing up you know he was on overtime he had you know people watching him far before he got to the league obviously Chino Hills he played overseas he was in the NBL so I think he just has such a unique you know he had one of the most unique paths ever to get to the NBA so I feel like he's battle tested in so many different ways my personal question with LaMelo Ball was always, how was he going to hold up health-wise? He's kind of, you know, he's got a thin frame. And I know both in both Lithuania and Australia, he was unable to complete those seasons due to injuries. So far in Charlotte, you know, he's been healthy. He hasn't, you know, it doesn't look like he's dealing with much. And I know James Borrego was getting on him early about turnovers and stuff like that. But I think you just got to let the kid go. You know, so all the best playmakers in the world, you know, risk takers, maybe with the exception of CP3, have always been guys that are going to get four or five turnovers, you know. So empower the kid, let him go, and 
you know, see what, see what happens next. And, and I think Charlotte, you know, sounds crazy after such a breakout year last year, but I think they might move on from Devonte Graham just because they got Rozier there too. And Malik Monk starting to play well. So maybe freeing up some more playing time by moving off one of those guards will only serve to help LaMelo in the long run. Yeah. I can't believe that Rozier has turned into the better player than Kemba in this, in this past year too. I would have never, I would have never thought scary Terry would be better player, but also with LaMelo, and this was probably attached by the personality of LeVar, who's kind of me first type of guy. I kind of just thought watching LaMelo's style overseas and in high school that he was a me first guy too. But if you watch him with Charlotte, it seems like his teammates love him. He plays an unselfish game. So I don't really think that's the case at all. I think myself included, I definitely misjudged his personality on the court, what he's capable of, um, his shooting ability. So it's exciting to see a different market and a different team in the picture. And a lot of people mocked their Gordon Hayward sign, and he's been solid all year long. Um, looks like he's healthy again, kind of the perfect number three option on that team. And again, we're seeing with them, and I think we're seeing this across the league, is just having really two guards um, running the team with Rozier and Ball. We're seeing this similarly, as we mentioned, in Brooklyn with Kyrie and Harden. I think this is kind of a pattern we're seeing across the league. But no, it's been exciting to watch them for sure. I wanted to get into the Lloyd Pierce firing, though, that we alluded to earlier. So the Hawks are one of the teams I haven't watched too much this season. When I watch them, I do get frustrated by Trey's style playing foul hunting, but at the same time, he's playing to win and you can't blame him for that. It might not be the most enjoyable to watch, but it is smart. So when they when they fired Lloyd Pierce, I was curious just because I feel like the whole franchise has kind of been built around Trey, and I don't know if that's fully warranted. So I was just looking at his plus nine plus minus numbers. I was actually pretty blown away that with him on the court this year, they're plus three overall. And with him off the court, they're minus nine. So he's obviously, regardless of how poor he can be defensively, he's clearly making the impact that he needs to make for them. Do you think that the Lloyd, the Lord Pierce firing was more so team performance or do you think they're putting too much on Trey really at such a young age? Yeah. So I've heard a lot of different things about the situation and I'm not sure what to make of it. What I will say is, Depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. Um, a lot of people felt that Lloyd Pierce's firing was the writing was on the wall um, because Nate McMillan at the time when he you know was let go by the Indiana Pacers, his initial statement was I'm going to take this year off and you know move back to North Carolina and just focus on you know sp spending time with my family that type of deal. Kind of like Daryl Morey told the Rockets before uh, getting in a you know president of basketball operations role with the Sixers. So that caught people off guard and what, and Nate McMillan signing to Atlanta caught people off guard. But I think if you closely followed the Hawks, so I didn't think of this at the time, but now that I see it, it kind of makes sense. But Lloyd Pierce was on the hot seat and Nate McMillan was kind of seen as the guy that they would transition to if for whatever reason, Lloyd Pierce didn't work out. And, you know, Nate McMillan's obviously a respected coach. He's been a head coach for a long time and, you know, former player, um, so Lloyd Pierce isn't a former player, at least for, in the NBA. I, I think he did play basketball professionally elsewhere. But so there is a bit of so I heard there's a bit of a power struggle between Lloyd Pierce and Trey Young. And we've heard this between, you know, Trey Young and John Collins. And they didn't like that Trey Young had such a control over everything. And I heard Lloyd Pierce wasn't a fan of Trey Young's foul baiting either or, you know, some of the deep shots that he took early in the shot clock. So 
it sounds like Lloyd Pierce was kind of fed up with how Trey was playing. And I think he understood, you know, Trey's significance to the franchise and obviously his impact on the court. And I think that that only became, you know, further obvious. I, I just don't think the Rajon Rondo signing has paid the dividends they expected it to. So their reliance on Trey Young coupled with, you know, their slow start and maybe whatever tension existed between Pierce and Young led to, you know, Lloyd Pierce being let go. And then, you know, as the Hawks, you know, faithful expected, Nate McMillan kind of filled into that role. So there's a lot of like, I guess, parts I don't know about and kind of gray areas. But if, you know, if I'm looking to kind of piece it together, it sounds like Lloyd Pierce was kind of on a, let's see what you give us this year. If not, we're moving on. And, you know, there's going to be a question about whether he was given a fair shot to be in with because, you know, they, they gave him a little more than two seasons and he was handed a rebuilding project. And, you know, generally speaking, when you get those type of situations, it's usually agreed upon that, hey, it's going to take us some time to win, you know, stick with it. But my best guess is that there was tension that existed, you know, in the front office, the coaching staff or with the players. And, you know, Lloyd Pierce uh, got the short end of the stick. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like to your point, and this is what we often see with star players is they choose the coach or the player and they always choose the player. But I just don't know if Trey Young is necessarily ready to be the number one option leading a playoff team. And I think that's kind of what the expectation was heading into the season. Definitely given the free agent signings they made, the amount of money they spent. I think at the same time, they've gotten killed by the injury to DeAndre Hunter. It looked like before that injury, he was um, really their number two guy. So We'll see what happens in Atlanta. I personally am not buying Trey Young stock. I know he is a brilliant passer and puts up great numbers offensively, but I don't necessarily think that at least at this age, and I don't blame him, he's young. I don't know if he's necessarily the leader yet to, to lead a team to a playoff run. So we'll see what happens there. Before we get into, I wanted to run through some, what I was calling decade decisions. Before we get to that, I wanted to just get your take on the Knicks. Obviously in the home market here, watching a lot of Knicks basketball. And this is really the first time in a while that they've been exciting. It's a shame that we can't be going to Nick games at MSG and feeling that electricity. But are you, are you very surprised by the 18 and 17 record and the play of Julius Randall? Or is this something you kind of expected with Thibodeau coming and now they're the number three ranked defense? Did you expect them to compete like this? I'm going to be completely honest with you. I actually didn't expect the Knicks to play at such a high level this year. Uh, part of it was because in his last situation, Tibbs, it seems like didn't, you know, he didn't adapt or transition into the new NBA as well as many people expected, you know, after his departure from Chicago, you know, the culture building aspect and the things like that didn't even work out the way I thought they would in Minnesota. And that's with Jimmy Butler and some of the pieces he was familiar with, but you know, here in New York, you know, he's been kind of a revelation, you know, he's kind of turned the franchise around. The young guys have bought into what he's, you know, preaching. Julius Randle's playing, you know, the best basketball of his young career. So um, I'm a bit surprised by how well the Knicks have played, but um, I think they're definitely doing something that is going to pay dividends in the long run, which is they're building a culture that might be attractive to stars down the line because, you know, the Clippers and the Nets, you know, you know, four or five years ago, I mean, the Clippers have been good, but, the Clippers and the Nets had both won a transition period after being playoff teams in which they had a bunch of like random pieces and they just played hard. Right. And the Nets got in with D'Lo and Dinwiddie and those guys leading, leading a group. And I think the Clippers, you know, it was Shy's rookie year where they had Gallinari, Beverly and stuff and Lou Williams, Montrose Harrell, 
neither group had a superstar, but they played hard. The culture was there. You know, the big market was there. And it was pretty much, hey, if you're an NBA superstar, this is your market for the taking. We have the infrastructure in place that will allow, you know, you to thrive because we got guys, you know, we got guys that want to work hard, that want to be here. And we're just missing that guy to take us over the top. And, you know, this is your chance to build your brand and, you know, make your mark and leave your legacy here. And, you know, soon after that, the Nets, you know, and the Clippers both got stars quickly. So if the Knicks keep this up, I wouldn't be shocked if in the next one to two years, some star looks at New York as an attractive destination and uh, finds his way there. Yeah, to your point, Brian Windhorst actually made a point on his podcast today that um, he he doesn't have – there's no facts behind this, but he has a strong feeling that this offseason um, some star player is going to have some interest in joining the Knicks or demand a trade there. So what I've been most surprised about with the Knicks is actually not just the play of Randall, but how steady he's been each night. I mean, I sort of thought there'd be a drop-off after the after the first month of putting up those type of numbers. The only thing that frustrates me with the Knicks – is, and it's way too early to say this, I know, is that they took Toppin over Halliburton. That's what frustrates me. I guess they kind of made up for it with this quickly pick, but I could just imagine Halliburton in this offense, which would just give you great guard play, and it's frustrating that they missed him. Um, do you? I don't know how much you've watched of him. It's hard to judge because Toppin hasn't played enough minutes, really. But even when they took him, did you like that pick, or did you think that they kind of jumped the gun? Yeah, I don't know. Just with Obi Toppin, I feel like he was so close to what he's going to already be. He was, I think he was like the oldest guy that went in the lottery. So, you know, and he was obviously a dynamic player at Dayton. So, you know, it's not that Obi Toppin can't play. It's just it seemed that everybody was so enamored with Tyrese Halliburton coming out that it was like hard to – he was like a, almost like a can't-miss prospect, especially at 11, 10-11 range. So – and I and I tweeted about this. I was like, yo – Tyrese Halliburton might be Sacramento's savior. Like he's that good already as a rookie. And I saw James Harden and Kyrie Irving pull him aside after they played against him. So there's definitely, you know, a respect and like a, an acknowledgement that Tyrese Halliburton might be a special player. And, and if you think about it, Sacramento understood this because, you know, Sacramento's best player is De'Aaron Fox. He's a point guard and, you know, he's the point guard of their future. And they still said, Hey, Tyrese Halliburton's the best talent available Let's just get him, even though he's kind of, you know, a natural point guard. But I definitely think the Knicks might end up regretting this one in the long run. But, you know, Emmanuel quickly might help kind of ease that pain. And if Obi Toppin develops into, you know, I heard like, you know, I've seen the comparisons to Amari Stoudemire as like what he could be if he were to hit a ceiling. I don't know if he'll get there, but um, he definitely has, you know, the physical tools and, you know, the frame and kind of the skill set to be an impact player down the line. So, with Knicks fans, you know, I see it all the time with Trey Young and Luca, where people are like, should we have kept the other guy? And they kind of, or should we have taken this guy? And they kind of look over, but hey, you know, you have what you have now. So if I'm the Knicks, I'm taking it slow and I'm, you know, uh, hoping that Obi Toppin develops into an impact player. But it just feels a bit redundant with Julius Randle kind of being your best player to have another guy who plays kind of that four spot. So we'll see how they put it all together. Yeah, I mean, the Knicks struggle to space the floor in general with the way this roster is constructed, but hopefully by the time Toppin um, develops, he's only he's he's played only a few – I mean, he's played minimal minutes with the Knicks, so it is too early to judge, but it is – they played the Kings last week, and it was tough to watch Halliburton play at the level he did. Um, I wanted to get to this little game I wanted to play, Nayod, of 
calling it decade decisions. So this is the player you would rather have for the next decade. And this is not uh, based on salary, just the player you'd rather have. So I have five pairings here. All these guys pretty young. So the first, the first comparison I have is LaMelo Ball, 19 years old right now, for the next 10 years, or SGA, who's 22 right now. <laughs> Man, that, 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 these are, the these are all one. kind of tough, maybe some easier than the others. I hope that's the toughest one because that's really tough. Uh, man, I'm going to go – dude, this is hard. I'm going to go with LaMelo Ball because I think the box office aspect can really turn around a small market team. I like SGA a lot, and I think we talked about this last time I was on about how he's already been battle-tested in the postseason, and you know that bodes well for him as the, you know, the young leader of a rebuilding squad. Uh, but with LaMelo Ball – and here's the thing with both guys. I think the both for both guys – the biggest question mark I have about them long-term in terms of them being a superstar is the physical aspect. I've always felt like SGA has kind of got one of those slower hitch releases and he's not, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't come off as one of those dynamic athletes where he goes to the rim and, you know, you're going to get dunked on or, you know, an explosive athlete. So with SGA, it's always been more about skill and kind of touch and, you know, precision. And I feel like LaMelo Ball is kind of the same, kind of the same thing. But I really like, you know, from an on-court perspective, obviously he's box office, but I really like, in the long run, LaMelo Ball's playmaking ability. And I feel like we've seen it with guys like James Harden, Luka Doncic, these guys that are 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", where they can get buckets, but their ability to see the floor and create for others pushes their teams to new heights offensively. I like SGA long-term. I'm buying my stock on SGA as, you know, a big-time scorer in this league going down the line just because I think he's played with so many vets that have been able to really, you know, teach him, you know, tricks of the trade. But I don't know if SGA has that, has that playmaking, you know, touch that LaMelo Ball has where it's like he has that generational ability to, you know, make plays for others. So this is a really close call, but I'm going to go with LaMelo Ball. Yeah, I think to your point, I don't know if SGA has that it factor that LaMelo has. Um, I think that, SGA is definitely the safer pick here. I think he's got the, uh, I think that ball definitely has the higher ceiling. The only thing that intrigues me, not the only thing, but one of the things that intrigues me with SGA right now is that he's playing with such an inexperienced roster and he's been able to really take charge as a number one option. So that's what intrigues me there. I'd like to see him, and we saw it last year, but he wasn't really ready for it yet. I'd like to see him with a better supporting cast, which I'm pretty confident we'll see in the upcoming years. But I think as far as higher ceiling, I think LaMelo has that, and I I agree with your pick there, especially he's only 19. So let's think about LaMelo Ball three years from now and if he's able to play at the same level that SGA is. The next one I had, this might be easier for you, is Luka or Zion. I don't, I don't think that, that one's necessarily easier, but <laughs> the reason I'm going to go with Luka is because I feel like was Zion Williamson kind of like what we see with Giannis and some of these other guys who are, you know, obviously dominant in the interior is that come playoff time when the game slows down and, you know, you need that guy that can create, just create offense at such a high rate. I think, you know, I think one day we're going to, you know, I feel like it's in the very near future, we're going to be here about the, the, the wall that's going to be made to stop Zion. And we're going to see how we adjust to that. You know, Zion, you know, he is dynamic. He, you know, there's not many guys that can stay in front of him at that size and quickness. And his second leap is just crazy. He misses a shot and it feels like he's always first to get it back. So 
you know, from a physical standpoint, I like Zion, but I've always been a guy that takes skill over, you know, athleticism. And Luka Doncic just kind of like Lamelo. He's a more advanced version of what I'm projecting Lamelo Ball to be. Um, Luka's already, you know, 39 and nine. So, you know, if that if that's all Luka gets to, then he's already a Hall of Fame level talent. But I think, you know, I still think he has a ways to go in terms of making reads and, you know, his shooting efficiency. So I see the areas where Luka can improve, you know, physically as well. With Zion, I'm always going to be, you know, I'm always going to say like, you know, if we have questions about LeBron James shooting the ball, there's always going to be questions about Zion. So it's going to be like, you know, back off of him, let him shoot. Let's see what he can do. Uh, but, you know, Zion, you, this is one of those situations where you can't go wrong either way. Zion sees the floor well. You know, he's uh, he's finishing at above like 70% in the restricted area. So, you know, in the while the NBA has been trending with, you know, small ball and stretch bigs and guys that can shoot, Zion is like a throwback in a way. And I put up a poll about this. I was like, which lefty bruiser has been the most impressive this season? And I put Sabonis, Julius Randle, and Zion because those guys are kind of bucking the trend and they're keeping that, you know, 80s, 90s bruiser kind of play style alive in today's game. And yeah, Zion is definitely a special talent. I just think Luca is probably the furthest ahead out of all the young players and he's like the safer pick. Yeah, I can't, I can't go with Zion here either. I think the two main reasons are just a, as you mentioned, Luca from a closing perspective, you're always going to feel more comfortable with. And then just from a health perspective too, I think we've been blessed with Zion's health this season, but that's going to always be a concern for me. And with the back to the closing, as I mentioned, the, even the past few games they um, against Milwaukee, it's just tougher for him to close out games. Not only is it tougher for him because he doesn't necessarily have the jump shot yet. I mean, he has been better from the line, but his free throw shooting makes it a little bit more challenging too. And then last night versus Utah, and granted, he's only twenty years old. Luca really twenty. Luca's twenty two, so it's not as if he's really up there in age either. But I feel like. New Orleans isn't really sure what they want to do at the end of games yet. And maybe Zion will grow into that. But as of now, I think you've got to go with Luca, just given what he's able to do at the end of games and just what we've seen from guard play in general in this league. The next one I have here, which I'm unsure of is Zach Levine or Jalen Brown. Levine's 25 Brown, 24. I, sorry for, I gave you tough ones now. No, those are good. Those are good. I like, I like this. It, it, it brings good dialogue. And these are the discussions I feel like NBA fans should have. And um, man, here's the thing. I think Jalen Brown has, you know, I guess up until these, you know, last few weeks has always been in kind of a nice situation. I'm pretty sure he was drafted into a team where Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley kind of that, that conference finals Celtics team in 2017. So Jalen Brown's played in, I think three conference finals, I want to say in four years. So he's always been a part of, you know, winning teams and, you know, Coach Brad Stevens is one of the better, you know, tacticians in the NBA. You know, he's right up there with guys like Nick Nurse and stuff. So Jalen Brown, I feel like, has been blessed with playing alongside better talent, you know, better coaching. But I feel like if you put Jalen Brown in a situation similar to Zach Levine's in which he was the bona fide number one option, you know, not as many guys like Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker alleviating pressure off of him, I don't know if he'd put up numbers – I feel like his numbers would go up, but I don't know if he'd be able to do it on the efficiency that Zach Levine has done it on. And I think that's one thing that goes totally unnoticed about Zach Levine. You know, Zach Levine is his shooting slash is really comparable to Steph Curry. 
And I think people don't know that about Zach Levine. Like, yeah, he scores, but he scores really efficiently. He's one of the best high-volume, efficient scorers in the NBA. So I'm going to go with Zach Levine, honestly. And the only the only thing that's going to make, you know, I feel like that's going to spark up more debate on this one is, do I value defense enough? And I do, but I think with a guy like Zach Levine, you can find the defensive pieces and build around him and cover for that. Uh, with Jalen Brown, I love the skill set. I love the ability. I just don't know if it matches the level that Zach Levine's at from an offensive standpoint. And I feel like Levine's just getting started. So if you ask me, I think Zach Levine has a scoring title in his near future. Yeah, you're taking the words out of my mouth. I was hoping we disagree on this one, but I was going to go with Levine as well, just because same, same kind of things you mentioned where he hasn't had that supporting cast yet. And what we're seeing this year is he's shooting over 50% from the field and he's got such a load on him offensively. I know that Jalen Brown is able to fit into different systems and can kind of be more of a complimentary player if needed, but can step up at the end of games and is obviously a great defender that could really cover one through four. But Levine, to me, you don't come around, you, you don't see offensive players at this caliber too often, and he can put up 30 points in his sleep, and he's only 25 years old. So I'm really excited to see him play with some more talent, whether that's in Chicago or elsewhere. So I'm in agreement there with Levine just because he's one of the most talented offensive players in the game. And he's been getting unnoticed just because I think earlier in his career, he wasn't efficient and people kind of labeled him with high turnovers, which is still an issue with it for him and not being efficient. But yeah, as we mentioned, and as you mentioned, comparing his numbers to Steph to Seth Curry, if you compare them, they're pretty comparable. So um, I would go with Levine here as well. I've got two more here for you. Next one is Devin Booker or Brandon Ingram. Ingram's one year younger. That's a good one. Ah, man. So I, I was talking to Devin Booker earlier, and I felt like people were jumping the gun calling him uh, a, you know, a for sure top 15 player in the league. Uh, but Devin Booker just came off a pretty good month here. He won player of the month in the Western Conference. So I think Devin Booker is a little further ahead in terms of his development. Uh, but Brandon Ingram does have that, you know, that frame. I think he's about 6'9", six, 6'10". Six, so in the long run, you know, Brandon Ingram might have the higher ceiling. Uh, the reason I'm going to go with Devin Booker, though, is because I feel like Phoenix has fully embraced him as the franchise player. CP3's kind of came in as a guy to kind of further help his development and assist Devin Booker in being the franchise player. DeAndre Ayton, too, you know, was drafted alongside him to be, a, you know, a pretty, you know, an important piece, obviously, but in a way, a complimentary piece. With Brandon Ingram, I feel like there's going to be question marks, at least for these next few years. Is it his team? Is it Zion's team? And I just don't know how that's going to play out. And with these players, you know, a big part of it is situation. So I like Devin Booker being coached by Monty Williams and, you know, having Chris Paul assist him and help him. You know, I think that's going to be big for his development going forward. With Brandon Ingram, you know, their point guard play is a bit questionable at times. I don't know if Stan Van Gundy is the right coach. We'll see. I'm not counting him out, but I think Devin Booker, you know, if you were to ask me this before, I might've had a different answer, but it seems like things are starting to, you know, starting to, Phoenix is trending up is what I'm trying to say, but I don't know how I wanted to phrase that, but due to Phoenix getting better now, there's more, you know, there's more of a feeling that, Hey, Devin Booker might be the guy that helps Phoenix become a really interesting team down the line. And I want to say they're the fourth seed right now. So they're definitely, yeah exceeding expectations for some people. Yeah, I'm actually, so I'd go with BI here. I think that he's still extremely raw. And to your point about Booker, 
it's a fortunate situation with him to be paired with Chris Paul. He's probably, if you ask any of the younger players in the league, maybe the most desirable guy to be paired with just because he can kind of take over that leadership role and he's an alpha guy, but at the same time, he doesn't need the ball in his hands. He can set you up. I think Ingram, to your point though, I think both these guys in the future, I think these are number two guys on, on a, on a real legitimate championship contender. But with Ingram, to me, I think that there's just so much left in his game. He's improved the shooting drastically the past year or two, three-point shot and at the line, and he's got a killer mid-range game. Him and Booker both have that. But what I like about Ingram is, and he's ran the point a decent amount, he did at the end of his L.A. tenure, is that he can be a playmaker and can be a facilitator. I think to the we made the similar point uh, a few weeks ago at Zion. I don't think he's surrounded by the right guys in New Orleans. They don't have the right shooting around him. Lonzo Ball recently has been able to hit the three at a better clip, but I think that Ingram so, still has so much room for growth. And as you mentioned, he's 6'10", 6'11". We spoke about this last time. He can get a shot off at any time and can always get you a good mid-range look. So I just think that 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 eight, seven inches of separation between him and Devin Booker and the fact that he hasn't really found that situation yet. I, I would take Ingram here. I'm also, he's also arguably my favorite player in the league. So I'm slightly biased with it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to see Ingram be in, in more competitive games. I think the one thing he's missing that Booker has is Booker knows how to close out a game and can get to a spot late in the game. And I think what we're seeing with new Orleans and specifically BI is they want to go to him late. They're unsure if they should go to him or Zion. And Ingram really hasn't taken that role yet. I don't know if he's comfortable with it, but I think eventually he's that guy at the end of the game can rise up and hit that 15 footer from the elbow. So I'm hoping that's what, that there's more to come with Ingram. The last, uh, last comparison I had here is Jamal Murray or De'Aaron Fox. Murray's one year older right now. Okay. This one, this one's a little bit easier for me. I'm gonna go with (laughs) De'Aaron Fox. Um, I like Jamal Murray. I think he's, you know, I think in today's NBA, it's crazy that a you know a guard like Jamal Murray could go for fifty points, and he's not even in consideration for an All Star spot. Like that's how talented the guard position has became in today's NBA. The reason I go De'Aaron Fox though is I think De'Aaron Fox, you know, ah man, I wish he was somewhere else besides Sacramento because I feel like De'Aaron Fox is one of those guys where his talent is just being—I don't want to say wasted, but in a way hidden from you know all of you know the mainstream media and things like that um i just don't think there are many guards ever that combine the explosive you know the explosive athletic abilities that De'Aaron fox has with such grace and skill like we see russell westbrook who's always been you know a physical specimen he's able to hit his top speeds and you know dunk on guys and you know just play at such breakneck speeds while you know leaving his imprint on the game but a lot of the times we've always question Westbrook's ability to kind of you know slow down when the game slows down can you make those reads can you set everything up like a point guard you know have your team execute in the half court I don't think that problem exists with De'Aaron Fox I feel like De'Aaron Fox has more control of his speed and his hyper athletic ability he's able to slow down he's able to decelerate which is what I don't think Russell Westbrook is as good at and I think that's such an important skill with all the best you know guards in the NBA they're able to you know change their change of pace their ability to decelerate kind of attack the defense in different ways that's important to have and I, I think De'Aaron Fox you know with De'Aaron Fox the one big thing is will he be able to shoot the ball at a high enough level to make defenses pay but 
I mean, pace is only going up every season in the NBA. Um, a guy like De'Aaron Fox is able to get to the rim, you know, finish among the trees. He has a nice little floater. So as in between games there, he's able to get into the lane. You know, he's a pretty good passer as well. So he's going to always create a lot of problems for the defense. And I feel like Jamal Murray, while he's very talented, has always had, you know, the luxury of playing with one of the best playmaking big men, you know, ever in Nikola Jokic. So, you know, he's been a beneficiary of some easy looks and some attention that his bigs take away that, you know, De'Aaron Fox maybe hasn't gotten a chance to play with. Yeah. No, this is a tough one for sure. I think that Fox is probably the more talented player, but we haven't, unfortunately, we haven't been able to see him play in more meaningful games. I agree with you that it'd be ideal to see him somewhere other than Sacramento. What concerns me about Fox is is the shooting, as we mentioned, not great from the line. 34, 35% from three-point is, is effective enough. Did you see that? Jamal Murray was fifth on the defensive player of the year ladder. Yeah, yeah, I saw that Steve Ashburner's list. I didn't even number five. I never even pegged Murray as a as a plus on defense, so that shocked me. I would still take Fox just because I think he is more talented, and he's been he's had to carry a larger load in Sacramento. I would, as you mentioned, like to see him play with a better supporting cast. So I would go with him there too. I'm going to keep my eye on though this Jamal Murray defensive situation because I mean if if he really is perceived as one of the best um, perimeter defenders in this league and has recently been better offensively, we know that he can come through in the big moment. So that's something I'll keep my eye on. But I would go with the Aaron Fox as far as just talent level right now um, and his what he can really reach with his potential. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm on the De'Aaron Fox train. I'm going to also be keeping an eye on Jamal Murray's defensive ability because I feel like this might be the case where advanced analytics and, you know, some of those defensive measurements might be incorrectly pegging a player, you know, a little bit higher than they should be because, you know, he's right next to guys like Rudy Gobert and Ben Simmons who are universally recognized as the most impactful defenders in basketball. So it'll be interesting to see if maybe we've been missing. He tweeted about it too. He's saying, so I definitely want to see that. Yeah. No, I'm interested too. I wanted to close this out with uh, two more questions. One was, I was surprised to see this. How old do you think Malcolm Brogdon is? I want to say he's 27. All right, you're close. He was 28. So I was going to put him in one of these comps. I thought he was mid-low. I mean, I thought he was mid-low 20s, more so mid. I was I was surprised to see he's already that old, but I think his game will actually, won't really, uh, I think his game will age well. The last question I wanted to ask you is, why are we so tough on Paul George? He's been having a great season. And then a few days ago, he had a rough fourth quarter and we're immediately back on the playoff P pandemic P train. As far as the media is concerned, I know that he came up short last year in the playoffs, but do you think that the, you think that the media is unfair to Paul George? Oh yeah, definitely. I I tweeted about that too. I was like, man, do we just (laughs) wait for Paul George to not play well just so we can slander him? Uh, (laughs) Um, He's having a great season. That's what make, makes it more puzzling. It would be one thing if his play from the playoffs last season carried over, but, you know, Paul George is shooting above 45% from three. I think he's 47% last time I checked. And, he, you know, he's been able to, you know, play efficiently. The Clippers are winning. Uh, I think the Clippers are, what, second in the West right now. Um, they've been, you know, they beat the Utah Jazz recently. And then I know they didn't win that game against Milwaukee and he didn't shoot well down the stretch, but 
man, I just feel like Paul George at this point, it's like with some other players, it's like no matter what he does in the regular season, nobody is going to give him, you know, his praise, his flowers until they see him answer some of those questions in the postseason. And I understand it, but I feel like that's just more, that's just the way the uh, NBA fans, NBA Twitter, that's how, that's the way they go. It's if you haven't proved it on the big stage, we don't really want to hear it. So I think Paul George has a lot to gain this postseason. So do the Clippers. I think Kawhi Leonard might have to answer some questions too after how he, you know, just the way they flamed out in the semis against Denver last year didn't sit well with people because they were, you know, slotted as the Lakers biggest competition. So we didn't get that all LA conference finals that we were hoping for. So honestly, it's unfair, but no matter how well Paul George plays, nobody's going to care unless it, you know, it comes in the postseason. And I think specifically in the deeper rounds against the stiffer competition. So I think Paul yeah. George is one of the best two-way wings in the game. So I don't, I don't see why people are so low on him. You know, he was available so late in the fantasy, you know, in fantasy drafts. And I got him in like the, I want to say the fifth round. I'm just like, yo, this like Paul George isn't good at basketball talk has became so, you know, so out of hand because Paul George is one of the most dynamic wings in basketball. So I hope he answers those questions and shows up in this year's playoffs. Yeah, I think it's got to be frustrating for him too. He has to know that no matter what he does in the regular season, no one's going to really care about it. It almost reminds me of in baseball prior to this past season when Clayton Kershaw kind of came up short in the playoffs every season and kind of had the same reaction from the fan base. But it's funny, I actually, talking about fantasy, I took James Harden with my first pick. And I was feeling real bad about that the first few weeks, especially when he was not really giving it his all in Houston and then decided they decided they were sitting him until they traded him. But the past few nights, he I think he, we play like a fan duel format. He had 80 points in our league, which is pretty pretty wild. So I've been I've been pleased with him. But now thanks again for joining me. This was fun. Uh, I'm glad I could give you some tough player comps for the next decade. We'll see uh, we'll see if we made any of the right decisions tonight. But thank you for coming on. 